last week, I, I sort of uh, uh, kind of got us started, and you'll see on your outline, that one of the things I think we can do is that we can expect God to be better than you thought. Uh, so many times, our view of God is limited by our experience or by our training or by our own limited thinking. I always uh, tell my students that, you know, this is, I mean, it's not, it's not a problem necessarily. It just has to be addressed. I'd say, you know, uh, what you know, you know, but what you know is not all there is to know, you know. And they're trying to write that down, you know. Um, and what we know about God uh, through Jesus Christ and through the revelation of God like that, we know, but there's still other things about God we don't know that we'll learn and we'll understand uh, in eternity. And so when we start asking, what can I expect from him? There certainly is a whole list of things and a whole list. And I think, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I get ready to go on a vacation, uh, and uh, I was telling Becky this morning, I have a couple of friends. One of them uh, is fishing up in another part of the country, and, and another one is hunting in Colorado. And I said to Becky, that's not fair. You know, that's not fair. And I'm here teaching school, and she said, and you had 14 weeks of summer off. <laughs> I didn't expect that. <clears throat> I didn't expect that from Becky, you know. But, 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 you know, how many of you would say that the most, not the most fun, but some of the great fun of a vacation is the roll-up to and the expectation before you ever get there? Anybody? You know, the kind of the expectation of here's where we're going, here's what we're going to do. And, and so expectations play this important part in our life. They prepare us for life. They prepare us for the experiences we have in life. And, and I think that we all at some level have some expectations of what can we expect from God. And some of those are well-founded, some of them, and some of them not so much. Uh, that, we've, that we've sort of accumulated some expectations about him that when we take time to think about, we go, that, well, that, that, may not, that may not be true. And so we're trying to work through that. Now, I said that he's better than you thought. If you think, like St. Augustine said, if you think you can understand all, everything about God, what you're thinking about isn't God. Because <laughs> he's better than that. He's better than anything we can ever imagine. Uh, and, and part of that is the correction in our thinking to say, I should expect that God is better than my limited thinking. The second thing I want us to look at, and this we're going to work at today, is what else can you, you can ex expect God to deal with something we all have. You can expect God to deal with something we all have. Now, I thought about this uh, in this idea we all have. Now, I'm going to kind of work at this from this angle. There are things we all have, and some of us do better with it than others. I I've been fascinated uh, as I've gotten older uh, with uh, the, the matter that we all have financial income at some level, at some point, and uh, we all have that resource. Some more, some less, that, that's, that's, that's understandable. But what I've understood is that, that we all have this resource or this thing, but some of us do a better job with it than others. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, this, the government has uh, broken down... I won't say that... <laughs> Had another thought right at the end of that word. <laughs> had another thought that just came right in right at the end of that word. The government has broke. Okay. Uh, I'm, the thoughts and opinions, teacher, not necessarily the thoughts and opinions of Crossing Community Church, it's elders or leadership. Right. Got two minutes in. But they broke down the median income savings of people. It's fascinating. 
that the median, now that's not the average, you take all of them and lump them in, you got one person has got, you know, $6 million, another guy that's got, you know, 39 cents, and you average that. Well, that's not telling, but the median is when you take those out, the median income savings of people in America. Here it is. This was shocking to me. If they're under 35, it's $1,580. That's all they got in savings. In my age group, 47, is... Uh, <laughs> I was shocked by this. At the age group that I'm in, 55 to 64, and I'm a little offended because on the church um, communication card, there's only one more box. (laughs) I'm off the elder board right now, but if I get back on it, that thing is getting redesigned. There's going to be a box 65, 66, 67. There's, there's going to be a box 68, 69. There's going, to be a, there's going to be a lot of boxes from then on. Because, it, man, it's depressing when you go to church and you go, there's one more box. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but, and, 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 and some of y'all are in that last box. <laughs> Scary, huh? We're coming right behind uh, in my age group, it's fascinating. In my age group, the median savings of people that have made money and, you know, raised kids like that is $8,500. That seemed low to me. $8,500. The data also on savings accounts or, or, or retirement accounts, that the median retirement account for people 50 to 55 is this. I'm just, I got the, I got the, the website if you want to go see it. According to the data, the median savings uh, for uh, retirement income is $8,000 for 50 to 55, and if you're a little higher, $17,000. That's shocking to me that people don't have savings, you know, money. Now, we all have money, but we may not all manage it equally productively or equally as well. Um, So it's something we all have. I want to talk to you about something we all have that God will deal with and Maybe it's because we're not dealing with this as correctly as we should. That like money, some people have it, but they don't manage as well. That there's something that God will deal with that we all have, and that's this. And I want to try to work my way through. I thought, I want to work my way through this. A conscience. Now, I'm going to start with this notion that we all have one. But I want to suggest, too, that from Scripture and experience in my life, some of us have one that doesn't operate as well. I mean, some of us have one that operates too well. <clears throat> and that's even not well, right? So I want to kind of dig through this. I, 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 uh, I've had some thoughts about this and, and working through this, about this idea that we all have one, but it, have we allowed God to work in our lives where it works well, where we're using it correctly, where we're, where we're involved with it? So, so I want to say that. Now, human tendency is... Uh, with a conscience uh, that we have, we have several d- defense mechanisms, I think, in dealing with it. Now, I, I, I'm going to start with this here. We did, did this last week, so I'm not going to... The function of the conscience or consciousness. The function of the conscience or... The word just means to know with. Like, if I know I did something, then I'm knowing it with maybe a standard or a law or an expectation. So the conscience is just to know with something. It has reference to something else, some knowledge base. So the the definition of conscience is just that to know with. Now, because we have one, the tendency is, uh, the human tendency, I think, and I'm just going to work my way forward to the scripture here, is generally when we feel like if it's affecting us or the conscience has awakened, 
uh, uh, Mark, Mark Twain made this, I remember reading, he said, good friends, good books, and a dull conscience make like great. <laughs> I thought, okay, Mark. Yeah. So what we tend to do is if we feel like the conscience has been activated or irritated is we deny what we've done, right? Or another way is we rationalize what we've done. Well, you know, under those circumstances, I mean, students all the time do this, you know. They tell me the dog ate my homework. And I said, but you loaded it electronically on a website. <laughs> Not sure how your dog got there. Uh, here's what I want to, I'm just going to lay this marker down and we'll come back to it. But it's been my observation with people, and I think the scriptures go at this really forcefully, is that for many people whose conscience has irritated them or afflicted them, is they then determine they're going to compensate by doing something better to try to make up for it. So, so, so I want to look at some of this uh, matter. Now, we talked last week, the, the function of the conscience, or the, 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 the function of the conscience. What, what does it do? Second is the failure of the conscience. The failure of the conscience. I'm just going to work through some notes I have here. I, this is something I teach uh, at Mid-America. And I'm going to use some words here that I think are related to this idea. The failure of the conscience is essentially based on the notion that the conscience can be trained. Uh, we've seen this through history with people. It can be trained uh, over long periods of time to where people no longer have any pang of conscience uh, with respect uh, to something that should be taken care of. I remember Martin Luther King uh, in his great work in the 60s was trying to awaken the conscience of America. He's trying to awaken. He thought it's, it's been trained to think this is acceptable. It's been trained to think this is okay. It's, it's been trained to think this is just the way life is and we'll deal with it. Martin Luther King was, was saying, no, the conscience has been trained here in an incorrect way and it needs to be awakened. And that was part of his great work in many ways was to awaken the conscience of an entire nation. So the failure of the conscience is that it can be trained through multiple and repetitious kind of activities. It can be trained through abuse, through exposure to other things. Uh, so, so that's it. The second thing is it, the failure of the conscience because it can be ignorant. <laughs> that's the East Texas word. That's ignorant, but ignorant. Ignorant. There is actually a distinction. Ignorant means you don't know, and ignorant means you don't know because you, you refuse to know. But, um, right, just giving you a little etymological training here about the formation of words. Um, but it can be just ignorant and not know. Uh, when I was a pastor, a young couple uh, that, I, that started coming to our church, they were from uh, another state, not Texas. They were from a northern state. And they had grown up in a sort of a, a pretty liberal church. You know, we were talking about this the other day. You know, we were talking about this wasn't it. But, you know, you, you know what Methodists are, right? Baptists that can read. And, uh, <laughs> You never heard that? No. <laughs> well, they grew up in a... I, I love them. I went to a Methodist seminary. Come on. Give me a break. Uh, but they were young kids and just delightful couple to be around. And I led them to Christ and started discipling them. And uh, as a consequence, um, uh, I, we began to talk and it became a little aware to me that maybe they might be living together without being married. And I just said to them one day, I said... Uh, to the gal, and I said, for fear that somebody's related to them here, I won't use their names, but um, I, I said to the gal, I said, are, are you guys aware, you know, the scripture has a kind of a standard here, a statement on this matter about 
if you will, fornication or in some respects, adultery like that. And I'm, I'm not kidding you now. These kids have gone to a church that they looked at me and went, what? And I said, are, are you aware there's a prohibition about this in Scripture? No. No. And I said, well, and I was trying to be very kind and very great because I, I knew they were ignorant. They didn't know. They, they, they had no training. They had, had no background. There was no awareness of this. And I remember Barry, uh-oh, sorry. I remember Barry saying to me, I mean, this was their heart. He, he looked at me and he said, well, I'm moving out today. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want you living in a van down by the river. <laughs> you know, do you have a place to stay? You know, you know and, and this couple, this couple separated like that. And we continued to disciple them. And then I married them. Now, the, the conscience may not be operative simply because it's not informed. It's ignorant. And, and we have to be alert to that to people. And we, we, we are aware of that. Uh, there's another area of it uh, that it can happen. I want you to turn in your Bibles uh, uh, to, to the book of Hebrews. I referred to this last week, and I'm going to hurry through this. But go to Hebrews uh, chapter 12. In my Bible, it's on page 1148. And then uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Um, In chapter 12, the writer is uh, drawing some conclusions about the life of following Jesus. And I want to work on this idea of the failure of the conscience can go in a couple of different ways. One notice here in verse 4. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you, you, you have forgotten the exhortation which is to rest you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline, the correction of the Lord. For, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son he receives. Now, I'm going to just kind of dial in on it because I've watched this, seen this, and I think the scriptures bear this out. That one of the reasons the conscience fails sometimes is because it's too insensitive. Notice what it says there. Do not regard lightly God's discipline. There may be a point here of saying that the conscience is is too insensitive. It's over time gotten hardened. It's over time. And the book of Hebrews references this at times about being hardened in chapter 3 by the deceitfulness of sin. Being hardened. If you look at that, it... It gets insensitive. It gets unable to detect that something's going on. Because sin, I tell my students, is not a zero-sum game. You don't, you're not here in your life and you decide, well, I'm going to sin, and people do, and then you come out the other side in the same condition. No, you're hardened. You're affected by that. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not, it's not nothing, everything's still the same now, just need to be forgiven. So, so the idea of an ins- a conscience that's insensitive is the idea that it takes the discipline of the Lord too lightly. Does it see that there? Don't, don't take it too lightly, if you will, the discipline of the Lord. And so I say I think the, the, the conscience can fail because people say, well, I don't think that's wrong. Or that doesn't bother me. Well, again, has the conscience failed here? It's too insensitive because it's ignorant, right? It's ignorant or it's unaware of what this particular situation or matter might be. So, so the conscience can fail. Watch this other one. This is, this is how we, we ended on this last week. 
nor faint when you're reproved by Him. This is where the conscience fails when it gets too sensitive. Too sensitive. Faint. Quit. Give up. This is a conscience that has been molded or, if you will, uh, worked at or uh, developed over time to where it's too sensitive to discipline. Uh, There are lots of reasons. uh, You can study this in developmental psychology uh, where children or people are brought up in homes where there's too much rigor. uh, There's too much. I've got a couple of books, by the way, at the back side of this uh, handout uh, that I highly recommend. Uh, One is Toxic Faith by Stephen Arterburn. And Jack Felton, and the other one is uh, We Would See Jesus by Roy and Ravel Hessian. Um, because through training and through home life and even church life, uh, the conscience in some people uh, becomes overly, overly sensitive. I, I said this, I probably told you, I had a nephew that grew up, uh, his, he was my, ne- his dad was my uncle. That, that would make him my nephew, right? Okay. Um, and Mark... Uh, was a very sensitive soul. Um, some of y'all, a few people in this class knew him. Mark, Mark was a really sensitive soul. He's a big guy. He was scary big, like 6'3", six, 6'4", six, weighed about 245, and picked up a, the end of a telephone pole out of a creek down by the university. He was scary. Uh, I mean, he got kicked out of the military for selling dope. He woke up one... Uh, one morning after he stole five bass boats at a lake. And uh, I mean, I'm, this, this is my family, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, he was crazy. He was crazy. He, he grabbed a guy by the throat one time at a football game and said, don't give me your watch and your car, I'll kill you. And he meant it. Now, all of that outwardness made him very repulsive. What was going on, on the inside, however, was an incredibly sensitive, broken conscience that every time he felt like he failed, he felt like he was, and he used some words I'm not going to use here. His own counselor said to him, Mark, when you fail, you you think you're, and he said, yeah, I am. I said this to Mark one time, and I I say this with as much, I don't want to be sacrilegious here, but I want to tell you, I think this is how far the conscience can get so sensitive, it will beat your brains out. I said to him one time, so Mark, would this be true? That that sensitive conscience that you had when you tried to serve God, any failure, bad thought, uh, uh, saying something, immediately thought, well, I'm not saved. I'm not a Christian. I said, let me ask you this. Did you have more peace serving the devil than when you were trying to serve God? He said, absolutely. Something's wrong here. What it is, is exactly clear. The conscience that has been so warped and so offended and so trained for whatever. And I don't, my uncle and everybody didn't do that on purpose. But there was something in the home, there was something in the church life, something in that that constantly made him feel like it's too sensitive. It's too sensitive. Now, Paul gives a phrase for this. I want to show you here. Uh, this conscience that's too sensitive. Do you believe this? Have you, have you met people like this that their conscience seems to just be wearing them slick? I mean, it never lets them alone. They, they feel like they're responsible for everything and every problem. 
And when something bad begins to hurt, it must be because I did this or I did that. And it's just constantly activated. Well, let me, let me ask you to look at it. Go, go to your table of contents. Uh, look for uh, 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Go to your table of contents. That's in the front of your Bible. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 10.85. Paul had to deal with this with people, um, which I've always been fascinated with because he deals with this matter about conscience in a way that is completely opposite of the way I thought uh, was accurate. He begins in chapter 8. He says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. He, he wants to lay a marker down to say, now look, we're going to deal with this issue, and let's, let's all accept the fact we all have knowledge. That's good. But remember now, knowledge can make you arrogant, and love does everything that it can to edify, to help you. So um, he, he goes on. He said, therefore, verse 4, concerning things offered to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. Now, he doesn't mean there aren't statues. He means there's nothing behind it. He means there's no reality to it. He's not saying there aren't people who have idols in their house or idols. He's saying there's no such thing as an idol. There's only one God. No such thing as an idol in the world. There is no God but one. For even if there were so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God the Father, from whom all things and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things and we exist through him. However, so I want to look, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not condemn us to God, nor would it make us worse if we do not eat. Better if we do eat. But take care that your liberty does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you have knowledge during an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if it is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? I'm going to tell you how the, the conscience is failing here. You can look at this. But how the con Paul says a weak conscience is one that can't do things. See, I always thought a weak conscience was a person that thought they could do anything. Thought they could do anything. Oh, you got a weak conscience, you know. You think you can do anything. You're, you, you can just live and act any way you want to. No, Paul says the weak conscience is the brother that thinks he can't eat meat even though there's no such thing as an idol. See that there? The, the, that's a weak conscience, meaning it can't function correctly. It can't say, well, now, wait a minute. There's no such thing as an idol. This food is offered to idol. I can eat it. No, 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 no. Their conscience is failing them because it's so weak they don't have the knowledge. Notice right here what it says. Verse, back to verse 7. All men do not have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. What's the answer to a weak conscience? Knowledge. 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 The conscience is failing here because it's assumed some things or believed some things or been taught some things, and yet now the conscience needs knowledge. I tell students all the time uh, when they come to school, uh, the first uh, week or so, uh, I'll tell them, you know, what you're going to probably discover 
as you go through school here, you're going to discover there's some things that you thought were wrong that aren't. Have you had that happen yet? Right? And there are going to be some things that you're going to think were right that aren't. <laughs> you found that out too? Yeah. Why? Because as we study God's word, as we live in community, all of a sudden we realize, hey, I used to think this was a sin or was wrong. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying just go ahead and do it, but, but I'm saying, you know, I was taught that, that, that going to the movies when I was a kid was a sin. I usually took the chance anyway. <laughs> I did. Right? I, I grew up in a tradition. Uh, we always thought we were always afraid that dancing would lead to adultery. You'll get that in a minute. <clears throat> you know, that, you know, uh, that, you know, all this stuff was sinful and wrong. And I thought, wait a minute. Why? Because my conscience had failed me in some of these areas because they had been brought up by churchianity or religiosity and all of these kind of matters. And, and now I'm getting knowledge and saying, whoa, hold on here. This is, this is something my church taught me or my youth pastor told me. They, they were nice people, but it's not true. So, so that the conscience can fail you if it's too weak. And I'm just fascinated by this, that, that Paul is saying, look, uh, here's a guy that, that thinks he can't eat meat, uh, even though we know there's no such thing as an idol. Here's a person that, that thinks this wrong because they've been taught this or that, but they have a weak conscience. See, a strong conscience has knowledge. A strong conscience knows the truth. A weak conscience, in some sense or another, is manipulated and driven by ignorance. Think about that. Because is it when you thought maybe years when you heard the person had a weak conscience, did you think that meant that they were too sensitive and too dialed in, or did you think that meant they thought they could do anything they wanted to? Yeah, that's what I thought. I th they thought they, that's not what the Bible understands. They don't say the weak conscience is the one that people do anything they want to. They're saying the weak conscience person they can't do anything. <laughs> They're tied up. They're bound. And so they, they have to have their conscience be informed. He says, this is because they don't have this knowledge. And so our conscience can fail us because it's trained or it's too sensitive or insensitive. It's too sensitive because it has to be informed and directed by knowledge. I, uh, I, uh, uh, let me read this. This comes from a lady named Rebecca Davis. A weak conscience is one that doesn't have the full strength of understanding of what Christ has accomplished and who they are in Christ. Say it again. A weak conscience is one that doesn't have the full strength of understanding of what Christ has accomplished and who they are in Christ. That's a pretty powerful statement. So what we need is to have our conscience, if you will, informed with knowledge. I'm going to use this word here, and I'll give you several ways to do that. Um, the, the conscience, I'll use this word, needs to be calibrated, reset. When Becky and I were in seminary, uh, and she was in seminary because she typed all my papers on a typewriter. Uh, the last paper she typed, she said, here you go. If you ever do this again, I'm never typing another paper. And she didn't. Um, so, uh, so we were in seminary together, and she was working hard at the University of Kentucky. 
and I was going to class. And so one day, you know, we, I'd grown up in Texas, and we'd lived there about a year and a half, and Taco Tico was all I could have for Mexican food. That's it, in Lexington. I remember going one time, I made an order uh, there and told the little young gal, I said, uh, I'd like a, some tacos and blah, blah, blah. And then I said, oh, hey, just uh, also add some chips to that. No, I'm not kidding you, this kid said. Uh, also added that to order some tortilla chips. <laughs> yeah, so that's the kind of Mexican food we had in Lexington, okay? So one day, I'm a fairly shallow person. One day I said to Becky, would you please take a day of vacation and I will cut class and I will have James Taylor, not the musician, uh, but who was the great, 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 great grandson of James Hudson Taylor, the missionary, I said, I'll have Jim record Dr. Wong, who his favorite word was devil at that volume. Uh, I could barely understand him in the lecture room. I found out I could not understand a word he said on the tape. I found that out too late. So he was going to record it. And so I said, let's drive to Nashville from Lexington. It's only 220 miles to eat Mexican food. <laughs> I'm not, a, I'm not proud of this. <clears throat> so I asked my dad if I could borrow his car because I need to put my car in a shop. 220 miles down to El Chico at the Rivergate Mall. I know exactly where it is. I knew what I was going to order. And we drove down, and uh, I said, order whatever you want because I don't know if we're ever coming back. <clears throat> so I got my dad's car, and we're driving along. And um, on our way to Nashville. And I made this comment. I, is my, my dad had a, anybody old, remember Datsun before it became Nissan? Yeah. I, my dad had a Datsun, a little car, a nice little car. And so we're driving there. And I said to her, and she remembers this. Um, I said, man, everybody sure is driving slow today. I just, these Kentuckians, what is it with them? This is an interstate highway. Now, back then in 85, the speed limit was 55. So I was, doing 58, you know. you know, I'm always thinking calibration, it's an inexact science, uh, you know, I, who, can, who can prove that 50, you know, come on, so it, so we're driving, and I, I just, I, I said to her, and she goes, yeah, everyone I drive kind of slow, and all of a sudden, a Kentucky State Trooper came up behind me, pulled me over, and I just said, officer, what's the problem? He said, you're doing 72 and a 55, that's the problem. And I said, that's not possible. I, right there on my speedometer, it said 58. <laughs> I think I confessed right there. Um, he wrote me a ticket, and I got home. And I was so sad for about 30 seconds because we were heading to the restaurant. But um, I got home and talked to my dad for a minute. My dad said, oh, you know, I forgot to tell you something. <clears throat> I said, what's that, Dad? He said, I put 14-inch tires on that 12-inch tire car because it rides better. I said, so you're telling me the speedometer's off, right? A little. About, it's about eight miles, Dad. Yeah, so I, I got a ticket. However, I was looking at my desk the other day. Becky thinks I need help. I was looking at my desk at this school. I do. Uh, I have a 3x5 index card where I called the district attorney 
in, the, in Warren County, Kentucky, in 1985 and talked to the, to the district attorney, Mr. Fugazi, told him the story, and he told me this. You do not have to pay the fine. I dated it, timed it. It's in my desk today. So if I go to Kentucky, I'm taking it with me. I know the guy's name, I know what time it was, I know when it was, I know the office I called, and he said because of my story, I wouldn't have to pay the fine. Now, so, I'm not a wanted felon. In Kentucky. No. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so calibrating the, con the conscience. Let me give you a way that I would suggest when we're trying to calibrate it. If it's been trained, if it's been too sensitive, if it's too insensitive, if it's ignorant, all of these things. If it's weak, how do we calibrate it? I'm going to give you a, a thing from our Wesleyan tradition. That's kind of our family group. There's a thing. I'll, I'll write the word on here. You don't have to write it down. But um, Wesley and others said... Get a big word in Sunday school here today. Quadrilateral. <clears throat> Quad, Q-U-A-D-R-A-L-A-T-E-R-A-L. Quadrilateral. Um, <clears throat> that Wesley and others said that in order to establish truth, in order to establish truth, how do you determine whether something's true? How do you, how do you make some judgment on that as to the truth or error of this? And so Wesley developed, or he didn't develop, he instituted um, something the Church of England had already done, but he said this, he called the quadrilateral. Here's what it is. There are four, quad, four of them. We want to look at this to calibrate our conscience to say, is it from Scripture? Scripture, the first piece of the quadrilateral. In fact, some have said that Wesley had Scripture followed by a trilateral, <laughs> three other things. <clears throat> scripture. Second, Tradition. What, the, what has the church believed? Let, let's get some collective wisdom here. Let's, let's, let's look at this. Now, Wesley was pretty clear on this from this standpoint. Wesley, Wesley believed that the greatest tragedy in the history of the church, it's kind of shocking, but he believed the greatest tragedy in the, in the history of the church was the conversion of Augustine, uh, Constantine, Constantine, the emperor. Because he said the church got power and so organized it could work its way any way it wanted to and began to be an organization and not just an organism. So when he says tradition, he means this. The church fathers of the first four centuries. The church fathers of the first four centuries. What was the consensual teaching of the church then? You know, uh, I've, I've referred to Dr. Oden, uh, Thomas Oden, Tal's uncle that I had the privilege of getting to know. And uh, he died a year and a half ago or so. And, and I was in a group a couple times with Dr. Oden. And I remember him saying that, and I don't, you know, he just said that he wanted basically on his tombstone, I discovered nothing new. <laughs> yeah. I saw him get upset one time. I saw him get upset one time. We were in his room and 
he was we're working we're working on an app to try to get his work classic Christianity into a, an electronic form, and they're still working on that. And uh, uh, we were kind of getting frustrated with some of the IT guys. You know, come on, come on, this is what we want. This is how we want it. And you know, it's always okay to get mad at IT people, but because uh, well, anyway, so you know, we're to, and 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 somebody said this in the meeting. Listen. We got to get this thing fixed because we got to get Dr. Odin's work out there. Tom straightened up in his chair and he said, This is not my work. This is the work of the church fathers. This is not my work. We don't want Tom Odin's work. We want the work of the first force. I, I said, See, I told you that. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> I should have said that. Tradition. What did those first early councils believe? Nicaea, Constantinople, the early church fathers, Gregory of Nicaea, Origen, Irenaeus, Polycarp. There's a whole world of knowledge there to say, here we are struggling with things. What has the collective wisdom? Now, that doesn't mean you take everything. But what is the collective wisdom here of not me just saying, well, I've read the Bible, now I understand it. Has anybody else understood? So, so scripture, tradition. Third, reason. Wesley believed that one of the things that you're creating the image of God and one of the features of having the image of God in you, you have the ability to think. You have the ability to reason. Uh, he, he would say it this way, that God is above reason, but he's not contradictory to reason. You know, people make, I won't say that, back up, that, that, that two opposite things can't be the same. God is above reason, but he's not contradictory to reason. And so reason, then finally, the, third, the fourth one, he said experience. Does it work? Experience. Does it work? And so the calibrating of this conscience, because I'm just going to say, for many of us, I want to tell you, my conscience failed me. And I've had a long journey of doing my best to learn now how to get that thing recalibrated. My, that's been my lifelong journey. I'm a, I'm a nerve ending on the inside. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, anxiety will get a hold of me, and I've just got to pull it right back to Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. My whole life has been, and that, that's consistent with what Paul said, right? right? I beseech, verse, Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, reasonable service. How do you do that, Paul? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. See, it must mean your mind isn't renewed if you need to renew it, right? So this recalibrating, Paul sees this. He understands this. The weak conscience is just tormented. They're tormented by it. And so uh, uh, the, the conscience needs to be recalibrated. And how you do that is a lifelong journey. Mine continues to be developing. Mine continues to be working. So that's it. Okay, now, the th this is the big project. The fixing. I got that in parentheses. That means I'm not saying it like, it. you know, okay, it's fixed. But the fixing of the conscience. You know, um, I, I, I want to I look at this. 
uh, from the notion, if you will, turn to your Bibles, go to your Bibles and go to chapter 9 of Hebrews. And we may not get finished today. Y'all are getting a little mean. <laughs> for you. Yeah, chapter 9. Yeah. Getting a little mean. Um, the, the book of Hebrews is a tour de force, basically, of this word, better. <laughs> Jesus is better than the old sacrificial system. Jesus is better than the priesthood. Jesus is better than the covenant. Jesus is better than any other sacrifice. He's just better, 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 better. You can read the whole book, and that's it right there. He's better. One of the areas that this betterness is in is fascinating to me. In the idea of what Jesus did was to deal with the conscience. And, and the conscience shows up uh, in, in, in several places. And I just want to read this uh, for us here. Get my eyes on here. Um, I'll find it. Here we go. <clears throat> Verse 11 of chapter 9. Now, again, the context here is that this new covenant of which Jesus is over is greater and better. And uh, at verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of, of goats and bulls and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, and he obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling those who had been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, to whom the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? I want to work through this a little bit here. Uh, you'll note... There are several contrasts in this passage. One is the idea uh, of the blood of animals um, that is being offered. And then uh, the blood of Jesus being offered. Uh, the sanctifying or the cleansing of the flesh, or the animals, and the sanctifying and the cleansing of the conscience with Jesus. Verse 14 is, is a pretty uh, important phrase there just to, to note in your Bible. How much more? Now, this is the argument. If this is true, it's the technical are called a fortiori, that if this is true, if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes cleansed the flesh for human beings, how much more is it a fact that the blood of Jesus now cleanses the conscience? And this is where I want to dig in for a little while. I, I, uh, I hope I've got this, this thing just this week did this, you know, like that. Um, that, that this, this idea of the cleansing, purifying, the Greek word katharizo, it's interesting the word cleanse here. I think um, cleanse, katharizo, comes from a Greek idea that means to bring to unity. Say it this way. Cleansing or purification, that's the Greek word that comes out of there, is the word that's used for wine that has no water. 
it's cleansed or clean. I just want to kind of work around this, that, that the cleansing of the conscience is to bring some kind of unity to it. So, some kind of, of, of clarity to it. That the blood of Jesus is somehow able to do that. Now let me begin by saying, and you can see this uh, back in, um, in uh, f- uh, former passages, is that the, the Jesus' blood is superior because he's... Uh, the high priest who offers himself to the eternal spirit. Notice there, notice there, which says the, the, the blood of bulls and goats is offered this priest with uh, ashes for the, but the, but the, but the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to cleanse the conscience. Um, I've got lots of questions here. I have a statement I will read sometimes when I'm getting ready to teach. And it says, read yourself full, write yourself clear, and pray yourself hot. That's what I try to do. You know, read yourself full, read all I can, write yourself clear, and pray yourself hot. I'm, I'm hoping I got myself written clear. Because there are lots of issues here. Lots of, lots of matters that have to do this. Because it says here that Jesus' blood is able to do something here to cleanse our conscience. To make it clean. I want to suggest to you there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the superiority of the blood of Jesus. He's not a, not a created being like an animal, if you will. It's not uh, uh, that uh, uh, this uh, uh, matter of just an animal. He's, he's the son of God. His blood is different. He offers it different through the eternal spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is attesting to this and making this matter true. The other thing about the book of Hebrews that makes this superior to cleanse the conscience is this factor, and it says in other places in 7 and 9 and 10, you can, you can look this up if, you have, if you're interested. How many times did the offering of blood happen in the temple? Hmm? Every day. Every day. Every day. There's offering being made. Now, the big day, Yom Kippur, when the Day of Atonement, when everyone brought an offering. And the writer of Hebrews seems to be making this distinction. That one of the ways that the, the blood of Jesus cleanses the conscience is this. It's non-repeatable. It's finished. Think about it. The con- Remember, so the conscience can also mean the consciousness. The consciousness of knowing that every day an offering has to be made. Every day an offering has to be made. Every day an offering has to be made. The writer of Hebrews says, no, it happened once. It never will be repeated. It never has to be repeated because of its being offered through the eternal spirit. That it's absolute, complete, finished Result of this sacrifice can cleanse your comfort. What from what? Look at this. This is, I don't have time for this. Look at this. Look at verse 14. From what? Dead work, not evil works. What kind of works? Dead works. What are dead works? Well, from this standpoint, it's the ritual and routine of constantly offering sacrifices of trying to do something to affect your forgiveness instead of trusting completely in the person of Jesus Christ. Dead works. Now, I'm going to jump around here for a second because I can do that. 
You don't know where I am here. <laughs> I want to tell you how this works. Um, if your conscience doesn't understand through knowledge that this offering is greater, how much more? Can I tell you what? And this comes from Roy Hessian. doesn't come from me, but it, it's a great idea. For some of us, when we fail or sin, if we haven't really embraced this completeness, here, here's, here's what happens when we fail our sin and we want to keep our conscience clean. When you sin or fail, there are two people try to get a hold of you. One of them is the devil. And he's going to take you to Sinai. To the law. You've broken it. You failed. Yep. Remember what the book of Revelation says he does day and night? Accuses us before the throne. Day and night. The accuser of the brethren. That's his job. I was just actually, have you ever read anywhere in the Bible that God accuses anybody of anything? Just think about that. Who are you listening to? The accuser of the brethren, when you sin or fail, is going to try to drag you to Sinai, the mountain. And the Holy Spirit, when you fail or sin, He's going to try to drag you to Mount Calvary. Your conscience cannot be clean if you keep going back to the law. It can only be as we respond and relate, if you will, to what Jesus has done, completed, no, rep no repetition, it's finished, it's done, to save us and cleanse us from dead works. How many of you like me? You fail, the first thing you think of is, what can I do to make up for this? Anybody? How many liars I got in here? No. <laughs> right? Fail? The first, my first reaction is to think, oh man, I better do something to make this right. What's happening? I'm getting drugged to Sinai. I'm getting drugged to Sinai. But Jesus, if you will, through the complete sacrifice of his life to the eternal spirit, has cleansed our conscience, brought it to unity. We know who to depend on. We know what to believe. And we know what to trust. I've got a phrase here. I just, I made this up. I don't know if it's even, you know, here it is. But the conscience is cleaned when we learn upon whom to lean. That's when your conscience will be clean and stay clean. When you learn, when I learn, upon whom to lean. This clear conscience is something God wants to give us. He wants to deliver us from dead works. And folks, dead works are anything we try to do to achieve right standing with God. They're dead. Why? Because the living Spirit of God has brought the way to Him through Jesus. It's just dead works. I'm just fascinated. It doesn't say from evil works, from being bad. It says our conscience is cleansed from dead works. I don't have to earn it anymore. I don't have to be good enough anymore. I have to go to the sacrifice that Jesus made. My conscience is cleansed from dead works. Is that good news? Hmm? Is that good news? Every one of us, I think at times, and maybe you're smarter than I am or more spiritual than I am. I'll end with this. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, this summer, uh, when I, did I tell you this about being at Glen Erie? 
I probably told you this. I te I'm teaching 13 times. Anyway, say it this way. The Lord had to deal with me this summer in June when he said, Cliff, you are, you've been in this thing long enough. You've been a Christian long enough. You kind of got this accumulated righteousness in your own head. This accumulated, I'm a pretty good person. He said, what you're doing is, is you're seeking to establish your own righteousness. Then he drug me over to Hebrews, or Romans 10, where it says, I have a, he said, I, I pray for Israel because they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to wisdom. For seeking to establish their own righteousness, they reject the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Philippians 3, where Paul says, not seeking to have a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Matthew 6, that says, seek first the kingdom of God and whose righteousness? His. Not yours, Cliff. Not yours. See, those are dead works. When they're done because of love, when they're done because of gratitude, when they're done because of appreciation to God, they're alive. When they're done to make me get right with God, when they're done to satisfy the requirements of God, when the conscience won't let go, they're dead. Because Jesus is who cleanses our conscience. When what? What? When you learn to lean. So who are you leaning on? I mean, I'm talking about down in your heart and your soul. Who are you really leaning on? Is it you? Is it your works? Your ability? Your conscience? My conscience will never be clean. As long as we know we're relying on ourselves. We're going to keep working on this because I think there's some other matters here we need. To. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, you did something for us that we may not know a lot about. We may still need our conscience and heart and mind renewed and recalibrated. And so for all of us, would you help us as we journey and learn and grow that we might live in the glory and the wonder and the joy of a clear conscience, not because of us, but because of the blood of the Son of God who offered himself through the eternal spirit to cleanse our conscience from dead works. So in this coming week, help us as we live with the joy and the reality, our conscience is clean. In Jesus' strong name, amen.